You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and I finally feel my age when I see young people I've known for a long time become their adult selves, where the choices they've made help codify them, and they become the person they were always meant to be. So it is with one of our guests today, Alexandra Malik, whom I have known from the time she was a college student dating the son of very close friends of mine. I always liked her verve and style and sass. At one time, she even worked for me while I had a daily radio show. And now it is clear that after a decade that included working in an art gallery and working in nonprofits and working for Human Rights Watch and owning an art gallery, that Alex has found her mission. It is, and it's a little surprising coming from that universe, to help reform the way justice is meted out in the state of California. It is to help youth who are incarcerated and neglected, and it is to promote restorative justice. She is my guest today, along with the co-executive director of Restore Justice, Adnan Khan. I think you will understand why I wanted to talk to these two powerful young advocates. But first, my top five. Number one. Finding parking spots in Manhattan on the weekends in the summer. I don't need to add anything to that. It's a victory. You get it. Number two, cotton eyelet fabric. Now, cotton eyelet fabric is very lightweight. It has little holes woven in. And eyelet is a word that even the spelling bee at the New York Times recognizes. Even it recognized it before raffia. So... Why not make it one of my top five? And it certainly is just, you know, on a sweltering day, it's very comfortable. Number three, hot dogs. Now, don't scream at me. I know they're bad for you and they have nitrates and filler and all that. But in the summer on a grill, a beef or turkey hot dog is a special treat. I've eaten one already so far this summer, and I'm sure I'll eat another. And with mustard, And even with sauerkraut, I'm one of those people who likes sauerkraut. It's a great pleasure. Number four, straw hats. It took me years to get over my hat shyness. I never looked good in hats, and I always felt like I was wearing a costume. Oh, look, Lisa thinks she's in a production of Oklahoma. Oh, look, she thinks she's in the Yukon. But now I wear hats a lot, and I wear them in the summer for shade and to keep my skin covered, and I'm starting to like the way they look. Big brim or small, I appreciate the hard work of the summer chapeau. And number five is Shannon Watts. She is the founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. She's a mom, and before she started this nonprofit, she was taking care of her five kids. And She started a Facebook group after the Sandy Hook tragedy, and she has become one of the great advocates against guns and for gun control. And she is heroic. She is also now the author of a book called Fight Like a Mother, and I'm going to try to get her to come and join us on this podcast. Shannon Watts is number five. So let's welcome Alex and Adnan to the program. I have two guests who are so fascinating and also not 
maybe what you would expect on this show about gratitude, but you would be wrong. You would be so wrong if you didn't get it when this show is over. They are Alexandra Malik, who is an old friend of mine, and Adnan Khan, who is a brand new friend of mine. Together, they are the executive directors of Restored Justice, a nonprofit based in California that works on, uh, on, on prison reform and on restorative justice, which is a, a, a system that brings victim and perpetrator together to create some form of peace and reconciliation. Did I say that at all correctly? Absolutely. You did. Yes. Yeah. Oh, good. Yes. Great. You're looking for a, a job in marketing? Perhaps. Yes. We'll okay. see how <laughs> we'll see how this podcast does this year. Um, now, <laughs> what's so interesting is crime is the most exciting ca- category of podcast, and the world has suddenly become crime crime crazy. Whether it's S Town or Serial or my favorite murder, and I, I mean, over my dead body, Dirty John, I'm doing commercials for all these other podcasts, mm-hmm. but there's a hunger for that in people who are, let's say, privileged to not be part of that slice of, of the world. But yet, no one, whether they're listening to those shows or not, even is aware of the conditions of a prison. They have a TV idea, they have a movie idea, but what what the reality of living in a prison is like is nothing like what we've seen. Isn't that right? Uh, I totally agree. And the podcast that you're talking about, I haven't heard any of them. Uh, uh, my favorite criminal justice podcast is Ear Hustle. That was started by our friend Erline Woods and uh, Nigel Poor inside San Quentin State Prison. Um, but you talk, You said it. You said that those are crime podcasts. They specifically talk about the suspense and drama and entertainment around people's crimes, the who done it or did they do it, did they not. But they don't talk about the humanizing of incarcerated people and what incarcerated people uh, go through and how they live their lives and how taxpayer dollars are being spent um, with punitive approaches of prisons. Those things aren't necessarily out there, but they're realities. When I first met you, you asked a bunch of us, what do you think prison is for? And that was a really interesting way to approach us because is it punitive? Is it rehabilitative? Is it is prison intended just to discard people in this country? I mean, we certainly have the highest number of incarcerated individuals of any free world country. Yeah, I, I right? think if you add up all the people that are incarcerated in, in the world on Earth, 25 percent of them are in the United States. Um, and so that's how much we incarcerate people in this country. And of the 25%, how many of them are people of color? Oh, wow. I mean, a majority. Yeah, a very high, high majority. Yeah. Alex, tell us how you became involved in this uh, universe, in this campaign, and how it became. I mean, I know you, when you were a college student. You I, gave me my first job, actually. I, I was remembering that. Yes, you were, you were our assistant on my 
old radio show, and you were good at it. It's you were still great on at my it. resume. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad. Look Don't at ever you. Now take you're it off. on the show. I now you're wow. I dreamt about this. True success story right here. This is so powerful. I'm going to take my headphones off and walk out of this room because <laughs> this is the story I want to hear. It's mic drop. You the know, full my circle. job is done. You know. <laughs> yeah, was, exactly. Uh, I was just sitting there in the uh, studio, just hoping to be interviewed one day, and here I am. And here about you are. 15 years later. But I would never have thought we'd be talking about prisons. Absolutely yeah, masked, not. Her, yeah, her full circle is masked in criminal justice reform just to get back on this show. Well, you know, <laughs> some people some will. <laughs> but the fact is that you were, you your career took lots of different turns, and it did turn. You went, uh, you started working for Human Rights Watch about what? Six years ago? Six or so. Oh, about seven years ago. Um, but before that, I was volunteering at San Quentin State Prison, and uh, I really got involved uh, through a campaign um, of, regarding uh, children who were sentenced to life in prison without parole. And what I found out was that the United States is uh, unique in incarcerating children to, for life in prison, which is um, a horrific human rights abuse. So that's how I met Adnan was... Um, I got to meet uh, people who were sentenced incredibly young, uh, mostly teenagers, uh, and given life sentences, and really um, thrown away without any hope of coming home. And I mean, that really comes from the narrative that a lot in the me- the media has pushed, um, especially you know all of those podcasts that you mentioned. Uh, we talk about violent crime or violence, and we're perfectly okay with someone. You know, the person gets apprehended, gets convicted, and then we don't really care. We just we're happy they're put away. But what really happens to the person, and especially, you know, you, you read about so many crimes and what happens, and they're, so many times they're so young. So a lot of times they'll be, you know, 16, 17, 18. So what happens, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later to that person? And uh, that's how I got involved. I got to meet teenagers, people who were teenagers and uh, who were serving life sentences, who are now my age. And that's how I met Adlan. When you talk about children who are sentenced to life without parole, are you talking about is there an age group? Does that start at teenage dumb? Or are, is it possible that a child even younger than that would be put away? Well, uh, children have been, who are even younger than that have been put away. Um, mo- uh, most commonly, it's as young as 14. Um, actually, Adnan and I know uh, many people who are uh, given life um, sentences at 14 years old. I mean, and there are adult, there are serious crimes. I mean, we can't um, you know say that they aren't serious crimes or that the child hasn't caused a lot of harm, but they are given life sentences. And so, what happens to that child when they grow up? Uh, and how do they grow up? Well, they grow up locked up, right? Yes, and uh, yeah, and then so what do we do with the child once the child becomes? I mean, uh, Adnan always says, uh, and I don't want to steal his catchphrase, but... Um, oh, yeah, I didn't he know it was a catchphrase. I, you know, I just, it, you say this and it just, uh, it really puts um, things into perspective. He was an eight-year-old Little League baseball, uh, baseball player, and then he became an 18-year-old who was serving a life sentence. So what happened in between? And then also, uh, are we the same person um, that we were five years ago? Most of us aren't. I don't even remember who I was five years ago. So uh, if you think about who I was 20 years ago, I just don't remember that. And how to be responsible or pay the consequences for that person who no longer exists in some way because the brain isn't fully formed. Until 25. So I did a lot of work around um, youth and uh, how youth should be treated and uh, how one's brain isn't fully formed until you're 25. So the a lot of the 
crimes that are committed, and actually that's the highest age of when people commit crime is between the ages of 16 and 25, and then it significantly lowers after the age of 25. Um, so what? how do we hold people accountable when they're that young? When uh, And Adnan can really talk about the brain chemistry about that. Um, but it's also a kid who's who's committing a crime, let's say a theft, let's say a drug deal, let's say something goes wrong, they get caught. They may have been raised by a single parent. They may have been on welfare. They may have been homeless. They may have had none of the advantages that would protect them from this life. Or their expectations may be very low because the cool people who live near around them are criminals. Um, yeah, I mean, I, pretty much everything you mentioned there, um, I could put a check by each one of those things. Um, and none of, none of those things for me are excuses for why I did what I did. Um, but I do want to say that, like Alex mentioned, I went from an eight-year-old Little League baseball player to an 18-year-old with a life sentence. And I think it was Jesse uh, Jackson who said, like, none of us are born armed and dangerous. And so there is, like, this development of, well, there's development through neglect or abandonment or some form of trauma. And trauma is, is generally, when we look at trauma, it's something, an experience that happens, a negative experience that happens, or systems or, or um, consecutive experiences that happen that change the way we think, change the way we process information, change the way we process emotion, if we process emotion at all, most times we don't. And the b brain chemistry that Alex was talking about, and I'm probably gonna butcher science, but my understanding of it is, why does the brain develop, uh, it takes 25 years for the brain to develop, okay, what's happening scientifically in the brain? Literally the development of it, the physical development of it. And so what they said is your decision-making part is your prefrontal cortex, with it, which is in the front of your, your dome, right? And that is where once you're 25 that decision making part of your brain is fully developed where you can weigh out consequences you can weigh out uh, you could process information and emotion a lot differently so when the brain is being developed as teenagers or when the brain is being developed in general it develops from the back of your head to the front which ends with the prefrontal cortex and what's developed first is em the emotional part and so as you notice, teenagers do things on impulse. You have teenagers, right? You, you're a mother. Like, I owned a few. You yeah. owned a few, right? Yeah. So yeah. In, your, in your time, right? So yes. like, I mean, I mean, like teenagers do stupid things. I'm, I'm one of them at a young age and in groups. And it's all impulsive. Now you couple that or quadruple that with lack of care. Um, years. I'm talking about maybe a decade. This is only teenagers. And talk about decade of abandonment, neglect, um, um, drug abuse, possibly. Uh, tons of trauma. I'm talking about grief, like watching someone get murdered. Sometimes your best friend getting murdered. We we have a friend who was incarcerated at 15, was given life. Six weeks prior to him committing a murder, his best friend at the age of 15 died in his arms, was shot mm. and killed in his arms. And he blamed himself. And from that on, the next six weeks were like anger, anger, anger. No therapy, no help, couldn't afford it. Um, they didn't know it existed for him. And so what what could have changed for him if he did receive some type of help? Um, instead, he ended up hurting someone very bad, like killed someone and got a life sentence in prison and then grew up in prison without any type of rehabilitated help, um, any type of comfort and care. It was punitive. It was um, for me, it was a, a culture of power and abuse and control. Um, that was the most common thing that I experienced in prison. Do you think that the culture around urban kids, around the poor, around the neglected 
can be changed first, or does it have to? Do, can you only change it once someone's been incarcerated and they're already? It's almost too late. Is there any way that we can take all the youth that? have no place to go, that don't go to school regularly, that don't have a caring adult in their lives? Is there a way we can find them and care for them better than we do? Um, I think I think that we can. And I know there's probably an age old, you know, question like, you know, what, how can we change like, you know, marginalized people? Um, there's a lot against it. I, I believe and a lot of people believe that um, it's it is a form of systemic oppression. It's happening on purpose. Um, and sometimes a kid is not it is, it, a child is doing short suffering through grief but they're doing fine but they get targeted because of maybe their skin color um, by by police officers or or uh, lack of funding or lack of resources I mean in those communities which mean like so, so which mean like emotional intelligence classes or therapy is not provided in um, like public schools generally especially public schools where kids like that that come from margin, marginalized communities can um, access to. And if there is, it's generally people who cannot relate to their circumstances. The big push that we've been doing um, nationally, but I can speak for California, is having formerly incarcerated people going back into schools, being being used as an untapped resource to go back into the communities um, and then be the mentors and the quote-unquote psychologists or therapists um, for these young people that are experiencing these traumas in schools. But right now, um, that stuff isn't normal. Uh, what's normal is, hey, you're a bad kid. If you act up in my classroom, I'm going to kick you out. Where literally your future depends on you being in that class. And your future really depends on a teacher understanding that maybe you're acting out. Maybe you're not a bad kid. Maybe you've witnessed something bad or been hurt and you don't know how to express yourself. Absolutely. I mean, it's a giant question, and it's a giant crisis in Mm -hmm. this country. Is California leading the way towards uh, a new approach towards it? And, And, I mean, I'm asking this question out of pure ignorance. I have no idea what state in this country is better than any other. I mean... I wish I could say that California was leading the way. I mean, in Oakland, they used to have a restorative justice program, but then they just lost funding. So, I mean, I don't think any any place is leading the way. I mean, I, I wish I I don't have an answer for that. Um, I mean, it, it, it varies. I, I don't have the numbers for that either. I will say in California that there have been um, a lot more um, organizations, community-based people. Um, it, it's still behind. I mean, we still have a death penalty. Um, we still have... Um, a huge incarceral system. Um, but there are people, at least, that are now... It's beyond, like, kind of talking about it. People are organizing. People are mobilizing. Um, whether or not there's actual systemic change happening, maybe incrementally there is. Um, but I think right now, where we are, 2018, 2019, um, it's the most I've ever seen uh, people mobilizing, organizing, and um, beyond talking about these issues or trying to get stuff on the ballot or trying to get um, pieces of legislation accepted by the senators or assembly members... Um, are kind of going into the schools, into the communities and rallying. Um, this has definitely been happening the last year or so, or a few years, I would few say. Years, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about the preponderance of illegal guns and how much that is to blame. I mean, I guess it's chicken and egg in a way. If people in these disenfranchised neighborhoods see guns around them, see cool people with guns, know that shootings are 
kind of a daily occurrence or common occurrence and are maybe less afraid of guns than they should be? Is that part of what is going on? Um, I mean, that that is a very tough question. I mean, it could go to the, the chicken and the egg uh, debate, you know, and go in circles. Um, and, you know, one side says that, yes, it it, are, it is these guns. And so now I'm seeing a lot of push towards we need to um, have background checks. But the truth is, like, people that in, in the neighborhoods or in the hoods don't need background checks to obtain guns. Um, and so it's not about that. But what it is, it's like this this culture that's being created of people who have to, in, in their words, in, in, in a lot of our words, like protect ourselves. Um, this thing I was reading, they talked about how if you have a kid um, who grew up in a rural area, not even rural, but grew up in a you know predominantly white neighborhood, who's is a, probably a white kid, um, and, and where police officers are, from him, um, looked at as people who can provide safety and comfort uh, for him. So if this kid in the suburbs, someone comes up to him and asks him, give me your iPhone, his natural in- inclination will be to comply um, and then go alert authorities. Right. But if you take a kid in, in the very same situation um, that is from the hood and uh, grew up in that culture, um, someone tries to rob him or her of their iPhone, their immediate reaction generally um, would be to, first of all, defensive because in the back of my back of their minds or my mind is like officers, police officers are not a place of safety and comfort. Matter of fact, they're the enemy. And so they're not there. I don't have that safety from someone above a quote unquote authority figure to protect me. And so I am on my own. I felt like this. My family has probably felt like this. I was raised into this belief system that I am on my own. And so when that confrontation happens, um, it is not so much I'm going to go ahead and give you this there's going to be a survival part about it one because I can't let you take this from me then I'll be victimized and seen as as a person who can be victimized in this community consistently um, and two is that that um, I'm on my own and I have to take care of this problem by myself so you take those very two kids and put them in a classroom and then going circling back to the classroom part where the kid who grew up in the suburbs steps into the classroom and the teacher says is starting class like alright quiet you guys sit down the kid will comply because he sees authority as someone that's trusted and, and safe. He feels safe around that form of authority. That very same kid comes in the classroom and the teacher's like, all right, everyone sit down. And the kid doesn't sit down. And they say, like, hey, you sit down. It will be more of a combat. It will be combative. So same concept about going back to the gun part. Um, I think I want to say that when when guns, it's not so much about the gun um, in, in the neighborhood. It is the, the idea behind I'm on my own. And protection does not come from officers. Protection comes from um, these guns that may either can protect me or make me feel powerful. And so a lot of times that is translated into this object, which is which is the gun. That is so well put. I so understand that, uh, the way you describe it. The cop, the teacher, the principal, all these authority figures are people that you are sort of if not taught explicitly, somehow made to learn these are people who are not going to protect you. Right. I mean, they're they're yeah, they're personifications. They're hostile. Or they're personifications or projections of a, a system. Wow. So interesting. So interesting. Can you do you mind going back and telling uh, the sort of uh, bare bones of your story? Um. Sure. Um. How far? Well, uh, well, what I'm uh, actually the eighth, the eight-year-old little leaguer. I mean, that's a really poignant 
way to look at little Adnan uh, having a, a pretty conventional, nice childhood, and then what happened? So I think for me, it's a um, which is also very, very common. It's a classic case of developmental uh, trauma. And so for me, it was consistent experiences of abandonment, neglect, feeling uncared for, feeling unloved by my primary caregivers. So eight, or eight years old, yes, I was a Little League baseball player. But that eight years old is very significant, significant for me, too, because that's when my parents divorced. My dad was already an absent father. Um, I always like to say that um, during my incarceration, I reflected on what my life would have been if my father was all the way in my life or what my life would have been if he was completely out. Instead, he was in and out, and that, for me, created more of a tease. Instability. Uh, instability, and, and, and to to almost a point where that instability of love and belonging and and, and um, being cared for, it, it was at a very intense, and much. I was much more sensitive. I became much more sensitive to it because of the, the tease of the, here's a little, I'm going to take some away. Here's a little more, and I'm going to take more away. Um, and that really, I think, started to develop into the necessity of looking for that need. At 12 years old, uh, my mom remarried, and my stepfather ended up becoming very manipulative, abusive. Um, he would threaten to kill me. He paid my best friend, that was my best friend since third grade, $10 to try to beat me up. Um, he And my mom wouldn't believe me, and so she took me out of sports. Uh, the one thing that, uh, as a punishment, because... Uh, oh, another thing that he would do is put... take uh, His sons have... Have his sons, my stepbrother at that time, take money or jewelry or credit cards from my mom and put it in my jacket or coat pocket to frame you to frame me and I remember uh, the first time that happened uh, first time I was accused of stealing from my own mother was from my mom uh, she called me from work and uh, which was very rare if my mom called me from work that was something serious or important and she's yelling at me on the phone like why did you steal it they found this in your jacket and I told mom I'm not doing it. I was crying on the phone but she didn't believe me and so at that time I already knew as a 12 year old exactly what was going on okay here's this stepfather who's okay this guy's no good um and again i wanted love and affection from him because my actual father did, wasn't providing it and once i saw that and then saw my mother take his back and then take me out of baseball the one thing that gave me one a male positive male role model and then peers that were very similar in doing positive things as 12 year old kids um and so when she took me out of that um that really really made me not trust adults at the age including of, her including I, her I imagine at the age of 12 um, and so, and I mean, I still remember when my baseball coach came to the house, he, he rang the doorbell, um, my mom opened the door and he says, Hey, why is he quitting? Cause I was, a, I was actually pretty good. Um, and so he's like, why is he quitting? Why is he, why is he quitting? And I remember crying, standing behind my mom, um, kind of hiding behind her leg. And, uh, and she's like, no, yeah, he, he doesn't want to play. And, 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 um, he said, um, ask him, ask him, does he pointing at me? Like, does, does he want to play? Does he want to play? And I remember crying, and I, I peeked around her leg, and and then when he asked me, "Do you want to play?" I looked at her, and I said, "I said no, like I don't want to play." And even though everything in my body was telling me I do, um, and psychologically, I probably um, subconsciously understood that that was something that I needed. Um, but anyways, I stopped. You know, those events really made me stop trusting adults, like you said, even my mother. And so this need for belonging, like I didn't. You know, and then my mother would tell my uncles, aunts, and gran grandparents who lived nearby that I was also stealing, that I was untrustworthy. So when I was at their home, they would look at locked doors, look at me with suspicious eyes. So at 12, 13 years old, like, it just didn't feel, no place felt like home. Um, 
when my dad did appear, it didn't feel like home. Um, he was drunk and uh, alcoholic and a bad gambler. Um, at, at my stepdad's and my mom's house, didn't. My grandparents, uncle, aunt's house, it didn't. And so I naturally gravitated towards like the part. And mind you, I'm still a good kid. I was good in school. I learned. I, I was uh, A's were easy to come by. Um, but the, the, the everything I was experiencing. I mean, a 12 year old that's depressed, 13 year old that's depressed. Um, I found comfort and sustainability of of uh, care in other kids that were like me. So when the quote-unquote good kids would go home once the street lights uh, turned off at the park while we're playing basketball, a couple of us would stay back. Um, and again, I still felt like I was a good kid, had good morals, good values, but I started um, smoking weed when I was like 15, um, started drinking alcohol a little bit when I was 15, 16, started running away from home, cutting school, um, and those things just developed. Uh, Fast forward by age 17, haven't seen my father since I was probably like 14. He was com- Now he's completely out of my life. Um, my mom remarried and mo- divorced him, remarried and moved out of state, left me to the care of my uncle, aunts, and grandparents, and a month later I was kicked out of the house. And so living homeless was very tough um, physically. Uh, at 17, like, didn't know where to where I would stay. I slept in cars, parks, uh, friends' houses, couches, like anywhere, anywhere I can. Um, so, like, a physical structure was something I definitely definitely needed, and it was difficult. But what was more difficult was that all, my whole childhood, since eight years old, all my ideas and subconscious beliefs about not feeling loved, feeling uncared for consistently, um, abandonment, neglect, um, hurt, pain, shame, those things were reinforced as a person who literally is kicked out of the family. Like, we don't... Here, this is official. We don't like you. Like that was validation to me at that time. Like, oh, this is for real. Maybe I was, um, you know, guessing this the whole time, but this is for real. And and I really am unlovable. Um. Oh, absolutely. I really am unlovable. And so, like, for me to be part of a group of friends meant everything. Loyalty, trust, which was not provided at home, became everything to me. And so, like, I like to say, like, the reason I committed my crime at the age of 18 um, is is a decision that I made consciously. Yes, I was 18. You can talk about the brain development, whatever, but I definitely want to take full responsibility for that decision. However, I, I will say that everything that led me up to that point made that decision easier to make. Right. Right. So I'm not blaming homelessness. I'm not blaming right. neglect because not everyone who faces those things become commit crimes right um but i will say in my situation everything just added up in that moment um so take us to that night yeah so so to that night here i am uh about a month prior i I run into a guy while i was while i was kind of homeless sleeping in this broken car he's uh i was 18 by now i turned 18 homeless and uh he was 22 and he realized that i wasn't living anywhere and he said hey man my sister got married and she i live with my parents um we have an extra room just come live with me and that just meant a lot to me. I felt like I, owe, I owed him everything. Um, he was older, so I saw him as his older role model. And what we would do, we would we would smoke weed together, and um, but live at his house um, with his parents, who were very hospitable, actually. Um, so I, I finally I felt like someone and a stranger like like cared for me and loved me and like cared for me so much to bring me into your home, which is a complete opposite of where my primary caregivers kicked me out. And so that just um, meant everything to me. And so I would do anything for him. Um, so one night we're at his friend's house. Um, we're smoking weed in a room. And uh, they came up with the plan. They said, hey, we know this guy. 
He's a good kid from the suburbs. Look, he has a thousand dollars worth of weed, and since we know him, and you don't, Anon, um, and we'll set up a fake drug deal. Look, no guns, no knives, no weapons. Um, I, I've never held a gun in my life, even till this day. I've never shot a gun or held a gun. Um, so the plan was for me to, in a fake drug deal, because I didn't know him, take it from him and run into a car, and the driver would drive off. And so. I didn't have a car, neither did he. So he called up one of his high school friends that I didn't know. Maybe I think I met him in passing once. Um, and uh, he called him up to be the getaway driver. And his job, from what I was told, was once Anon runs to your car, just drive. Um, drive away. And so I agreed. I felt like, you know what, absolutely, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it for you. Um, um, do it for me and, and whatnot, whatever my excuses were. And I thought at that time, okay, this is easy. Just grab and run. Um so long story short, uh, the young man comes down from uh, a town, not not close by, far away, and once he's handing me the weed, uh, my co-defendant, the guy who was supposed to be the getaway driver, I found out later he suffered from bipolar schizophrenia, wasn't taking his medication. He, for no reason, pretty much pulls out a knife, he stabs, and, and kills a young man. Um, this was a crime that could have happened as planned, and you would have driven away, maybe gotten caught, but certainly not dealt with a homicide. Uh, no, the the you know it was crazy. I thought about the worst that could happen, and the worst that could have happened, I thought was, you know what, like we're gonna have a thousand dollars worth of weed <laughs> because I did not think that a person that has a thousand dollars worth of weed would call police officers. Right. So that is where my mind was like, oh, this is so easy. Like this person. And I know it was wrong. That was not who I was anyways. But, like, I just felt like this this the worst that can happen is we're going to come up with $1,000 worth of weed. And and so thinking of someone dying, absolutely not. Um, the plan was not to have any weapons. Um, and maybe this guy did carry a weapon the whole time with him because he was schizophrenic. I don't know. Um, but I will tell you, I got out of the car and I was yelling at him. Like, cause it was the middle of the night or it was 8 p.m. It was dark. And I was yelling like, hey, "What are you doing? What the what the f are you doing? Get in the car! What are you doing?" Because I thought they were fighting. It looked like they were fighting in and the middle of the street. And they weren't even fighting. He just um, yeah, he was stabbing them, which I didn't know. The next morning, two a.m., I was arrested and I was charged with um, robbery and murder. And uh, this kind of segues into the legislation, but um, I was charged with robbery, murder, and I was told that because I was guilty of the robbery, I'm equally guilty of the murder even though if I went to the extent to stop it um, I ended up going to trial I was facing the death penalty for 18 months um, I spent my eight from 18 to 22 in county jail fighting my case back and forth in court but when I went to trial um, and I'm, I'm sharing this for context of what the law is I was not on trial for a murder um, my trial literally started with the district attorney saying ladies and gentlemen of the jury uh, we are not here to prove that this man, Mr. Khan, committed a murder. Matter of fact, I will tell you right now, he is innocent of the murder. What your job and what the jury's job was, the 12 jurors, their job was to find me guilty of an intent to commit a robbery. That was their job. That's what the whole trial was for, um, which I was absolutely guilty of. I took responsibility immediately. Um, um, I took responsibility immediately. I owned up to my part of the, my part of the crime. And so... I was I was guilty of that, and I still am guilty of an intent to commit a robbery. And so once the jury found me guilty of an intent to commit a robbery, their job was done. They went home, went to their families, and the next phase was the sentencing phase, which was with the judge alone. And with this law, the felony murder rule, um, the judge had to sentence me to 25 years to life. 
That's the part that makes no sense to me. And I guess that's the part that made no sense to you, Alex. The 25 years to life for a robbery that did not involve a murder. That seems like a very long sentence. Yeah, I mean, 25 years to life. I mean, and at the time when Adnan was sentenced, um, it no one was getting paroled. So that means 25 years to life, when people say that, it means they have to do 25 years, and on their 25th year, they get to go in front of a parole board. But uh, at the time, no one was getting paroled. Uh, parole was just something that was completely fleeting. Even now, uh, there's been a lot of reforms a- in California, and uh, we we have a, still have an 84% um, parole denial rate. So, I mean, it's a huge triumph for the 16% of people who are coming home. But for the rest, I mean, it's it's still um, heartbreaking and difficult. So when Adnan was convicted and, se- and sentenced, uh, he thought he was going to die in prison. And so um, I guess I we meet, uh, I think, 14 years into your sentence or 13 years? Uh, 12. 12 years into his sentence. Um, so during, with my work, I met a lot of people, um, juveniles and young people who were given life sentence, who were sentenced to life. Um, and there were a lot of reforms that were helping getting them out. But there, um, the one story that I would hear over many, many times and that, you know, I just made no sense was this felony murder rule. Um, and then meeting Adnan, uh, he had a spirit of an activist. And uh, I remember him telling me about his case. And I just thought it made no sense. So um, I remember we were talking about it. And I said, he told me, he said, well, the only way... Um, for me to get relief is for the felony. The law has to change. And I guess, you know, me coming from a place of such privilege, I just thought, well, we'll, we'll change the law. <laughs> <laughs> and Both so, my parents are lawyers. I'll do it, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can figure that. You know, so uh, that's kind of what started our quest uh, on uh, reforming the felony murder rule, which, um, you know, we eventually passed. And, uh, and then Adnan was the first person out, so... Uh, well, which means that as an accomplice to the crime, but someone who was not involved in the murder at all, mm-hmm. you could be resentenced. Resentenced to the underlying felony on all those illegal terms. But what that meant for me, the felony was a robbery. Um, and so now if there was a kid uh, or someone that was in my very position now, um, they would get the time for the robbery, and which could be, um, it varies. I think it's like, some time in county jail, several months in county jail, 16 months or maybe three years or five years, something like that. So um, eventually I was resentenced to three years. And when I was resentenced on in January of this year, a few months ago, um, I had already served 16 years. And the judge resentenced me to three years. So California owes you some years. Uh, you could say. You know, I don't know. That's. I think so, but uh, Adnan would never say that. I mean, because I do, I mean, I do, I know we're having this a conversation about reform and inequality or whatever, but I definitely still, regardless of what the law says, I do take full responsibility for uh, for what I did. And I understand that there's a young man that it is not alive today and his family's in grief and pain. And regardless of what I did or what I did not do, I was, I put myself, I hold myself accountable for that. Adnan. Have you met the family of this no. young man since? No. 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 Um, uh, the the system is not set up to facilitate that. Um, I also understand that both sides have to be ready for that meeting. 
whatever that means. Uh-huh. Um, but the system does not provide uh, those opportunities to prepare, get ready, or really get ready just means find healing. Um, but that's a different conversation. So <clears throat> January 18th of this year, you suddenly are a free man. Like literally, I didn't even know. You didn't know it was even coming. No. You're a free man. You enter 2019. You were last free in what year? 2003. 2003. Facebook, Donald Trump. I mean, <laughs> obviously, you knew what was going on. You had a TV in your cell. You weren't, you know, muffled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's like Rip Van Winkle. You went to sleep, yeah. and then you yeah. get get up, and it's a different it's a world. different world. This is a strange question, I suppose, but... You know, you're probably maybe marveling in the world because you get to live in it again. But does it feel like a spiritually a different place from the the world you left in 2003? Um, yeah, there's definitely two ways to answer that for me. Um, one is you said spiritually. That's a key word that I, I uh, live by, like in my life. And so spiritually for me, where I'm at internally, um, it's a completely different, quote unquote, world that I live in. Um, out here, um, as opposed to 2003, the 18-year-old uh, homeless, no high school diploma, weed addict, um, and what that meant internally, spiritually for me in the world out here. And then where I'm at today, I'm so much at peace. Maybe just maturity is probably just maturity, but um, definitely at peace. Um, and so in that sense, like a lot more alert. And, and then there is part of like appreciation for the small things that I see, you know, like I talked about this earlier. Um, I spent so much time in prison that is built, the architecturally, uh, architecturally is built to deprive. Um, and so, like, I had, like, I didn't realize that I, I was suffering from sensory depri deprivation. Um, there were concrete walls everywhere I went for 16 years um, and dirt and dust. And green, seeing green was not a common thing unless it was on TV. But you can't feel and smell and those those other sensories that senses that come in with the visual when you're actually standing on like green grass um, is amazing and that's including dog poop like seriously <laughs> I mean even no, dog I, I could understand. appreciate that too you know yeah. the world. but um, but but and then the, the second way I can answer that question is yes the world has absolutely changed when I went in they didn't have cameras on phones yet um, they yeah you, like you said no Facebook Instagram none of those things existed social media was not a term yet um, it just the word social media didn't exist yet um, and so Though there was like AOL and Messenger and, and, and I still remember our music uh, from Napster. You know, that's what I... And, and trying to somehow record it on, or record it on um, CDs, those things were, were what the norm was. And now here I am and everything's at the touch of your thumb. Like right. every, the whole world I can connect with anyone. And that's another thing. I was deprived of connection of people, the world, family. And they're like right here in this little rectangle. Um, and it's it's amazing. It's it's I don't miss the old days. I don't. Um, it's amazing the world that we live in. Also, what's changed is like the way people the food has changed. And what I mean, like the movement around food, the the whole um, organic, um, what non GMO. I don't you know all that farm stuff. to table. Yeah. yeah. You know when I healthy went in food. healthy food. When I went in, like we literally the the, the world thought of the food pyramid yes and it was wrong i heard it, it's like it's wrong like right. the food chain over there like that, that that's wrong so we went in i went in thinking like the whole 
um, the system of food. This is what life is. I come out like, no, it's completely different. <laughs> so the concept of like, the, you know, food has changed. And, and it's also annoying. I was in L.A. and uh, I wanted some regular ass ice cream. He thinks we've ruined ice cream. You, uh, yeah, the world that Nanji, whatever this movement is, has ruined ice cream. Everywhere I went, it was it was vegan ice cream or avocado um gelato i don't know I, yeah like, i remembered you know i just uh, like what happened to chocolate chip cookie dough <laughs> I, I, I just appreciated his like cyn- cynical wit he's like alex i do not want to have fennel lavender ice cream okay yeah I, what's I, wrong with you man i i'm sorry i'm I, re-entry is so hard yeah you know yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um it is it really is that's re-entry like finding the correct ice cream um, wow. Yeah, and so so like things have absolutely changed. There are no more Polaroid cameras. Oh my gosh. Actually, sorry. we have them in our office. I I take that back. You have Polaroids? Yes, yes. It's like a hipster thing, you know, it's like And uh, it's cycling. a hipster thing now. Like that's the thing. Like Polaroid cameras were were the, were the norm now they're hipster things. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Um another thing I just want to add um is that that's changed for me personally is my mom is the eldest of eight children. By the way, just People are wondering, wondering. Um, my entire family and I are like very close now, very, very. close. You've forgiven her. I, I, I think we. Yes, the answer is yes. Um, that's where my healing is. Like going back in my childhood, um, reflecting, doing a lot of, a lot of introspective, grueling work, and going back to the, the root of my, um, behavior patterns or the way I process, uh, neglect and abandonment. I had to go back and understand the eight-year-old me. And then forgive like my mom what she was experiencing. Forgive my dad wh- whatever he was experiencing. And then that provided a lot of healing for me. So that's you know a lot of people are triggered today. Those triggers are are basically not basically those things are connected to experiences in our past. Adnan, uh, did your healing and reflecting and maturing and all these developmental things that have happened to make you the man you are now a wholly different creature from? Adnan Khan of 2003. Were those facilitated by doctors, by therapists, social no. workers, any priests? No. Um, I, imams? I, no, I mean, maybe on my own, yes. I mean, imams that I would go, everything was voluntary, what I did, if it was provided in the prisons that I went to. But was there a no. mentor who helped you through this and to uh, make you healthier? Not necessarily. More maybe moral life. person? No, like maybe life and just um a series of people that i feel like i was blessed to that that came to me um just learning and understanding and honestly i feel like um there's a spiritual protectedness that i've had over the years uh, and i mean spiritual in sense of like mentally emotionally i was protected and guided i don't know well, how i, I have to not- interrupt you there are let's say sorry let's say 600 men at San Quentin mm-hmm. State Prison it's probably more right 2000 uh, 4000 altogether 2000 that general population 2000 male prisoners and of those 2000 16% will be released because of this law that you help pass how many of them have grown as you have grown how many of them can reflect, can grow, Tons. can forgive. Tons. Really? I is not have the, a is number, that... but a high majority. So are you saying that even though the American penal system is not established to heal mm-hmm. or to counsel or to rehabilitate, people do it on their own? Um, people do it on their own, and they do find groups of each other to do it. But I will, I will say that there still are a lot of people who do need, who want help. Like who want college, who want self-help groups, who want 
therapy who need it and want it. Um, it's just not there. Um, but are there people like me? Absolutely. Anybody can sit in this chair and repeat the same thing, if not better than, than I did. And that's, the I think, the idea that these these podcasts you mentioned earlier, they reinforce ideas of who incarcerated people are because those things play on society's fears. Our laws are passed based on the fear that people have once they watch. People don't know incarcerated people for the most part. Right. They don't. They don't know. Um, like how many of your, your audience members have met someone formerly or currently incarcerated? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the, those numbers would be. But so what do they know about incarcerated people? Right. And then how where, what is the source of their information? And so I'm I'm sure I'm just guessing, but I'm highly sure that the source of the information is, is media, is, is Hollywood, is right. different podcasts. And so like I'm sitting here telling you that there are people that I know because of proximity, because doing time, there are so many people. The stories are never told. The kindness, the generosity, the love, the care, the, the hardships that we have to overcome. Um, which is hard, and that's on top of systemic abuse from officers and um, the, the 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 culture of of prisons in general, um, the violent culture uh, in prisons. So, like, are there people like me without any type of assistance, helps? Yes, there's tons of them, but there's also so many more that still need it that don't that don't have that provided for them. How does how does you've been in New York now for about a week? Have you investigated what? the the similar the similar aspects of New York prisons. There's some very famous ones here. Rikers Island, like Alcatraz, meant to send people away up the river to banish them. I think banishment is a big piece of what prison is about mm-hmm. uh, to make the rest of the population feel safer. But what do you know about what's happening here uh, in New York? Uh, I mean, there. I mean, there's um, a lot of great things going on in New York. I mean, one is the Bard, uh, the Bard University Prison Project, where uh, they're bringing college into prisons in New York. I know that there's lots of great restorative justice work just going on in the city with Common Justice. Uh, I mean, very similar things, but again, we still have the lack of support. But so yeah. systemically. Nothing is happening. Systemically, nothing. It's all What grassroots. is all happening is grassroots, is community-based outreach. Yes. I do know many yes. writer friends who teach through the BARD program mm-hmm. and who go to, I think it's Sing Sing, mm-hmm. it's closest to BARD College, and they teach creative writing. And I guess inmates get college credit for it because that's important, too, to get your college degree. If you weren't doing restorative justice, if you weren't part of a nonprofit trying to help the population you just were able to leave, what would you be doing now you know, as a free man? I mean, I mean, um, do you think? I think I think I would I would be um, trying to find a job somewhere. Um, I think for me, I'm fortunate to have a lot of family members where I could have, you know, find a place to stay. Um, which is the two major things when people come out. Uh, housing and employment are the two hardest things to acquire. Um, is there but, any kind of system there where, since we know that there's a big you know, uh, uh, fear of hiring the formerly incarcerated and, and letting them live amongst us, mm-hmm. is there any kind of social working network that helps prisoners 
I, I think in California, ex-prisoners. So the thing, the thing with California is that they're generally they're 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 having these transitional homes uh, and what they call transitional or reentry homes that have become somewhat popular um, a little bit. But the issues with they those how those the way they're structured is so punitive. It, they just mimic prisons. And so, like, you have an ankle minor on, your parole officer will come by and says, get off your phone and do, you know, things. There, there are rules that, if we're talking about rehabilitation and people reintegrating in society, those housings, um, those housing structures and, and the way the rules are, are made mimic prisons, which any violation can send you back to prison. And so, like, it, it is another form of systemic oppression that's happening. So, though people are like, oh, my gosh, there's tons of reentry support. No, it's not, because the way they're structured is very structured so specifically and they're administered through administrations. And they're run by Geo... I mean, a lot, the most popular ones, at least in California, are run by Geo Group, which, yeah. you know, we all know what that is, like private prisons. You know, they're the ones right. locking all the children up. Um, so, I mean, just not good people. But the, the, the most successful ones, um, the what we call not transitional, but re-entry homes, have uh-huh. been the ones that the community is taking upon themselves. They're not tied to the government or, or, or uh, corrections. They are the community that is providing housing and employment for people getting out. And yet, you realize it takes a special person to have that generosity and have that faith that a person like that will be a helpful part of the community. Well, I think that happens with just proximity to people. It just I mean, how many people, like I said, know incarcerated people? Like, know them. How many people know them? Yeah. None. So right. that, if you're talking about have trust and faith in the people coming out, it's still this big old, like, faceless figure. And I'm, um, I'm filling that faceless figure with my biases that I already have about, oh, my gosh, this person did what? And it's not about what. And our, our whole thing is it's not what we did. It's who we are today. You know, like Alex talked about, were you the same person when you were 15? Like this, I went in at 18. I'm 34. Like, 16 years later, I'm not an 18-year-old anymore. Um, and so, like, what people are fearing is the 18-year-old me, not the 34-year-old non-con that's out. And that's the problem that we don't have people knowing. Um, you know, prisons are literally, the, they built a wall. They keep community out on purpose because they. It's a, some people can argue it's a business or whatever you want to call it. But we need, people need to meet people who are incarcerated. Yeah. They have to. You have to. Proximity. And then, proximity. Yeah. And then make your judgment. And it, after meeting and actually getting to know somebody that's currently incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, um, and then you're like, you know what? I still have the same biases I have. I, after meeting this person, I'm going to stick to the way I used to think. Um, that's totally fine. Be- but you can at least say you've had that experience to go off of rather than TV or media or podcast. Like now you have actual su- substantial information to to assess a correct, um, you know, uh, to have a correct assessment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, to me, meeting you has been eye-opening. Just uh, Thank you. understanding that you made this uh, tremendous advance as a human being on your own during the worst set of circumstances, having normalized rejection and neglect and abandonment, and now coming out as a finer person who's going to help other people for a living, that makes me feel good. And if you're, as you say, like one in a million, uh, one in of many who are like you, that makes me feel good too. And I think that for all the people who glamorize these criminals from from Serial and all the other shows, I think it, it really bodes to look into what happens to these 
captivating, charismatic criminals after they've been uh, Not deprived. Can I say that? Because yes. I think Tell criminal, me what word I the, should use. Because the term criminal connotes like like active, meaning that person is still a criminal. Um, me, like I, I, at the age of eighteen, I committed a crime, but like that after that, I was not a criminal. Right. So, okay. Yeah, so like, so criminals. I mean, it's even um, language, we we try to tackle um, mass incarceration, the ideas around it, even through popular vocabulary. So like we use the term people formerly incarcerated or people incarcerated, fathers incarcerated, artists incarcerated, okay. writers incarcerated, um, because the terms um, inmate, offender, criminal, gang member, drug dealer, those things have um, quick biases. I mean, we're already we've already we are we know exactly what they mean in a matter of milliseconds once we say them. Fair, uh, fair yeah. enough. So and that's not to you, that's for society. Yeah. No, no, I'm I'm better than my society. <laughs> Everybody knows that. But. It does. It, it it's just a fascinating, fascinating subject. And I, the other thing I want to say is that Alex, who I used to think of as my protege, has grown to be so much bigger than that. You could have been a producer, an editor, or something like that, but you have changed your life. You were going to go to law school a few years ago. You work with lawmakers in Sacramento. You've had a huge impact all by yourself, little petite Alex. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. You're doing something that is really uh, uh, beyond community service, but it is community service because you're helping the world. And I appreciate that and am very proud of you. And now... You probably have a list of five things that improve your life. We did a collect. We thought about a collective one. That is fine. Agree on. Okay. I know that Adnan's on his own is different from mine, but this is kind of our office one. Okay. Um, And I want to say that for people who are interested in learning more about your work. They can go to RestoreJustice.org. RestoreCal.org. Sorry. Say it again. RestoreCal.org. RestoreCal.org. And uh, there will be much more media to come. Adnan is featured in Ear Hustle, Mm -hmm. which is, you mentioned it earlier, an interesting, wonderful, real podcast from inside the walls of San Quentin State Prison. And you'll be speaking on a documentary. I mean, you're they they have not heard the last of you. <laughs> no, nope, they haven't. Not by a long shot. <laughs> not by a long shot, hopefully. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's have the list. Um, first of all, I want to say that this this is genius. Like five things, right? Just the title and the idea of this of this show, and then having that the five things that uh, is it make your life easier. Or better. Or better. Or, yeah, yeah. improve your life, yeah. yeah. Like, like I thought of, like, in, in, a, in a funny, not a funny way, but, like, there's always, I'm, like, I had my lame list. Right. Right. And, like, number one thing was, okay, things that, like, God. Number one thing. That's not lame, I mean. And then, like, number two is family. And then number three would be ending world hunger. But not during, <laughs> let's not talk about it during dinner. Like, that's yeah. the only time I want to talk about <laughs> ending world hunger is during dinner. Um you know, just, just stuff like that. Um, number four, music. Number five, podcasts. You know, things. <laughs> but You'd then, be amazed how how often family and music 
come up? Come up. I'm sure. I'm sure. Because they do make life better. Uh-huh. But we went deeper. We went a little deeper. So yeah. our, um, if we want to just say what we came up with as a collective that we agreed on. He took notes. So okay. we'll go. Okay. So the first thing was, uh, first thing that makes our life better is cappuccino. Yes. It's yes. so good. It's so good. Yes. Did and a we whole... love and love the designs on the cappuccino. Yeah, foam art, latte art. Foam I don't art. know what it's oh. called, but I look forward to the art. Yeah, and how do you take your cappuccino? Um, with my hands. Okay, yeah. very fine. Whole, we're whole milk. Whole milk yeah, people. Yeah, we're whole milk people. Yeah. Yeah, she takes it with whole milk. Well, I take it with the hand. But, <laughs> but, um, but um, yeah, whole milk is, is something that... And, and this is all I learned through Alex. You know, I think like, that just came from uh, growing up in France. I just believe in dairy. I, I, <laughs> I just... I, I'm pro-dairy. Pro-vache. Yeah, pro-vache. Pro yeah. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, like... Vive la vache. <laughs> Vive la vache. For, for, me, for me to have the contrast on the, um, the cappuccino, I'm so, I was so used to... For 16 years, I mean, freeze-dried coffee, instant. You take a spoon, you put it in a cup, you put hot water in it. And it's dark, it's nasty, um, it's bitter, but it gets you up. Uh, it becomes, you become super hyper-vigilant in, a, in an environment you need to, to survive. And so now to just sit down, relax, not look over my shoulder, and drink coffee, cappuccino. Luxuriate. Luxuri- yes, and foam yes. art. And foam art. And like, foam oh, come art. Come on, come on. I mean, what about some uh, cinnamon on Alex top of Alex it? Alex is not a fan. I'm not a fan of cinnamon. But I'm I enjoyed okay it the it. other day. Or cocoa? No, I, I, I'm a purist. I just want some foam art. Um, but, you know, I think Adnan is more adventurous with That's the how the world toppings. has changed. When you say, I'm a purist, I just want foam art on my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is this welcome to? <laughs> I don't like this place. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so, so okay. one, cappuccino. Uh, number two is like, 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 Pillows, like soft pillows and soft we didn't towels. Know if we could swear. Um, you can swear. You can swear. Like soft, soft shit. shit. Soft shit. Yeah. Okay. Like just soft like, shit. Like, like pillows. Yeah. Puppies, blankets. Pu- blankets. Puppies. Goose down comforters. Um, king size beds. Um, couches. Soft. Like freaking couches. Something to embrace you. Yes, to embrace me. Yes, I like the way sweaters. you put that. Mm. Cozy sweaters. Come on, V necks. Phoenix. Like, like Who does it? Ca- cashmere, Phoenix. Oh. Um, come on. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Three come months on. ago, you were wearing polyester. Yes. Crap. Yes. And now soft you're shit. craving soft shit. Yes. Okay. That that makes soft shit makes my uh, not life better. Not literally, but though literally yes, but uh, makes life better. Yeah. Um, cashmere was on my list earlier wow. this it's year. It's so good. It's so it good. I, I didn't know it existed. Yeah. Yeah. But Welcome. I'm glad I did. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you. Half of cashmere. All right. So, uh, cappuccino. Yes. One, two, soft shit. Right. Number three. Three. three and this is, and I'm going to explain this one. This is, um, you know how people mansplain? Yes. Men mansplain. So, privilege explaining. Yes. <laughs> privilege explaining. Oh, yeah. Um, that is one of my, I can't live without it because it, it gives me like this fire. Um, and and Alex too, like it just like we sit here and so there was a lady about a few weeks ago. Uh, we're on a panel. It all directly impacted people, formerly incarcerated people, and the moderator is some person that is not directly impacted, but you know read it in a book somewhere. Um, and so we're telling her, she's like, no, no, the, the, the systems are changing. It's becoming so much more rehabilitative and it's becoming this. And um, we are changing the system. I'm telling you. And I'm sitting here like I just got and out. Ankle monitors ankle are Ankle monitors are great things. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, no. And I, I try to be very respectful. And I was like, you know, no, I'm, I think things aren't changing that much. And 
It's like, no, no, I'm telling you, things are changing to more rehabilitative and care and therapy and mental health service and health services in prison. I was like, hey, I just got out like 40 days ago. Like after doing 16 years, I could tell you. It's like, no, but I'm telling you. Oh, so she was privileged. She yeah. was privileged splaining. Privileged splaining, but I can't live without it because it, uh, it really helps me um, making sure that, you know, it, it, in a serious way, um, now I'm officially the co-executive director uh, of our organization that we co-founded. And um, um, it really puts my leadership in check. You know, it really makes me think about the responsibilities I have and who I'm, who I'm, um, Leadership only means that I'm in a I'm in a more advantageous position to help other people, um, and so like my friends call. Matter of fact, my friends from San Quentin were just calling me during this uh, interview, and so like I'm constantly reminded of like proper and ethical uh, and qualified leadership through through that. Um, and also, I want to say there's nothing wrong with privilege. Privilege is a huge reason. One of the reasons that why the law passed and I'm out today. Just utilizing and privilege just means an advantage. Y- yes, and you know, and now. Um Thanks to my privilege and our privilege, we introduced him to Kashmir, and he's yeah. grateful for that. And I'm exactly. so grateful, and now Look I'm at privileged. That. Yeah. And, and Kashmir's grateful to you. Oh, I haven't heard that back yet, but as soon as I do. No, that was, I, I was authorized to speak <laughs> <laughs> for Kashmir. I got a oh memo. Oh, my gosh. Um, the other thing we agreed on, this is more general. We said we wouldn't talk about generals, but um, we talked about comedy. Um, it, it is super general. Like, sure, okay, you want, you know, we want to laugh. We want to feel good. But just the comedy as a tool, what ha- it has done for me, one, no BS, as um, to survive in prison, I've actually got friendships and, and, and even officers at times like through humor. And, and what humor did for me was break down these very, very, very intense barriers, um, defenses, that whatever you want to call it, these shields um, in people that generally, um, when someone puts up a defense, then like, I don't know, it, it, it just, it stops like us from like growing, getting to know, understanding even. Um, and so comedy and humor as a tool and as a survival tool where every night when I would lay down, when I had a TV, I would lay down and instead of watching some show that had drama and action in it, I would just end my night with some 30-minute comedy show. Um, and that's how I want to sleep almost every, that, pretty much every That night. relaxes you. It relaxes me. It makes me laugh. I mean, I wish I laughed more as a kid, you know, and um, but I did and I was a lot more grief-stricken and and so comedy has um, is, is definitely one of those things I, I I can't you know that has made my life and our life easier. When Alex would volunteer, I mean, we laugh so much. When you would come in with the guys inside, yeah, I mean, we uh, we all like Seinfeld. Yeah. So you so you yeah. rehash. We'd rehash, you know, and yeah. also just joke. Yeah, I mean, she would come in like, "What's the deal with incarcerated people?" <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I just I think also just like. Life is so tragic, especially when you're um, you're dealing with um, incarceration life and, and life and death. So what you, you have to laugh, and uh, laughter connects us, and uh, it just relieves stress. So uh, it's been a great tool. I'm sure that's right. I'm sure even medically, medically. it helps. Yeah, medically. I, um, just they always say laughter is the best medicine, mm-hmm. and there was a book written by Norman Cousins many years ago about how the brain responds to laughter mm-hmm. and how it does actually help heal and grow. Well, you know, uh, oxytocin happens when you're laughing and all the good hormones start to mm-hmm. to Literally work. Longer. It's funny yes. you say that because um, um, I had a, in, in San Quentin, I was part of the college program and one of the classes I took was, a, a it was called, a tool for, uh, literally it was called Tool for Research, but it was about you do one research paper at the end of the semester. Your, your whole semester is you finding um, something out that you want to do. 
and write a research paper about. And so, um, and by the way, it's 30 page paper that I had to submit at the end of the semester handwritten because they don't have computers. There's no internet access inside. Um, and so what I went with is, um, is laughter really the best medicine? Initially, that's what I started with. And so I was learning a lot. I mean, just the learning process in that was fun. I ended up changing it to how right now, um, especially this is in 2016 uh, when, when Trump was elected. And um, it ended up, my thesis ended up becoming, um, actually, I can't literally remember my thesis, but it was about how co- we're in a comedy renaissance and how comedy is changing today um, in terms of how it's being used as a tool to fight back against the president. You know, like Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy yeah. Fallon and, and, and stand-up comedians are yeah. using their platform. For political. Uh, yes. And, uh-huh. and, and though that's always been around, but the, I had the statistics with like ratings and SNL, how SNL now in the East West Coast, they show it at 830 while they show it here. In, in, oh, in is the, that right? In the West Coast. And that happened in 2016 only because of Twitter. Because Twitter... Oh, people were yes, spoiling. Yes, And then Trump would respond. Right. I mean, he just bombed Syria, but he's responding to Twitter because of S- uh, Alec Baldwin's yeah. SNL skit. That's true. Um, and, you know, and so so that in itself is funny. But um, anyways, comedy. So that that's how much it meant to me that I wanted to handwrite 30 pages around um, political... No, I yeah. get it. Yeah. I get it. And you're a funny guy. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. So let's I'll recap. Cappuccino, soft shit privileged explaining comedy and the last one we both um, agree to um, but I'll use the I, I term but we both uh, agree and um, it's a little more ser- serious but it's the idea that I can change things and and on so many different levels yes change oneself change the change our our, our situation change uh, po- the policy change the world and you know that helps make us wake up and do the impossible every day yeah. It motivates you. Yeah. And it much. saves your life, literally, mm-hmm. figuratively. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is that, like, um, it, it's, I think what I, I stick to on that, on that saying is, like, the belief that I can. Um, you know, many of us, like, the way we grew up, and a lot of people don't even think about that they have the power to change anything because they're, they're literally born into the lottery of birth, right? Like, they're literally born into the whole deck stacked against them. Um, and so the the thought that, you know, I, it, for me to make it or change anything, I would have to be a rapper or dancer or singer or, you know, an athlete. Those are my only ways out. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not that's that may be true. Sure. I mean, if that's the talent you have, yeah, there's always an up and coming artist. Right. But but the truth is, like, you can change systems. You can change yourself. You can change your family. Like the way my family and I now once where I was like the destructive one, the family, quote unquote, I'm, I'm the glue of the family today. Um, slowly, my, my like my family is like finding healing with just sometimes my presence there. Um, um, friends and, and systems, like Alex said, you know, like we I believe that now. I I, I believe that a few years back as well, but I, I really, you know, believe in Alex. If Alex did not believe that she can change something, I would still be in prison. I have nine more years to do before appearing before a parole board. Yeah. Like you know, um, so literally the belief that you know what, fuck, I can change things. You know what? To all our listeners, if you've had a bad day, I recommend that you re-listen to this podcast and understand what gratitude is. And I want to thank you, Adnan. I want to thank you, Alex. I want to hug you both. Hold on to this podcast and keep it handy for those days that just feel hopeless. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with your host, Lisa Birnbach. That's me. My guest this week 
have been Alex Malik and Adnan Khan. You'll find a link to their website, RestoreCal.org, on my blog and at my website at LisaBurnbach.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Okay, until next time, stay cool, act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 